Hello and welcome to Enterprise Linux Security, episode number 58. We had a bit of a break. Part of it was because of a crazy ice storm that pulled down power lines. Power was out here for, I think, just under or just over half a week. So I had a lot of catching up to do. And at least one of the episodes was missed for that reason, but um, it doesn't matter. We're here today and we're gonna get everything back going again. Um, I have power, I have heat, and I have brand new groceries in the fridge because we lost everything, but I'm ready to go. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, Jay. Um, yeah, it wasn't all on, on the weather. There were also some health issues, but let's not get into that. So yeah, apologies for the delay. We're back. We hopefully are gonna be back on track again. And today we have a really nice and interesting episode. If you're in the slightest inter interested in cybersecurity, you're gonna like this one. And you should be if you're listening to the podcast. So yeah, pretty interesting one. We have a an entire description and very detailed description of how a, a red team actually does its operations. And CISA was really nice in sharing that with the world. And we're gonna go over what their details and um, the information they provided. This is such an amazing report because I feel like for anybody who is starting out in cybersecurity, or maybe they're even uh, not even starting out, but they're just thinking about it. If you read this report, and it's a big report. There's a lot of words on here, but they go play by play, um, you know, as they go through how they went about what they did. And it, it's just a lot of information about how people do what they do in the world of security that could put a lot of context around what we're speaking. But before I get ahead of myself, we're talking, um, like you mentioned, CISA has a report. The, it, the title is long. It's CISA Red Team Shares Key Findings. It'll be in the description after we're done recording. Um, but if you're looking at an article on CISA.gov, C-I-S-A.gov, published on February 28th, then that's the article we're talking about, and we're on the same page, and that's what we're going to be discussing. Yeah. So let's do a, a quick cap, catch up here in case you don't know. Um, so CISA is the cybersecurity agency in the US, they deal with security incidents and creating policy around it and implementing policy and best practices, even though we don't like the term, but CISA is the entity responsible for that in the US. If you're not in the US, then this is the equivalent of your national CSERT authority. Um, one of the, the responsibilities that CISA has is that they help organizations, not just government, but also privately owned organizations in promoting a more secure cybersecurity posture and environment for their own infrastructure. So they help your organization be more secure through checks, through penetration testing, through just providing information. And they did this for an organization and they created a very detailed report, like you just mentioned. And for the long-time listeners. One of our f earliest episodes was about the, the attacker mindset. We had a guest there. Um, we're probably going to have him again uh, sometime soon, but yeah, and just <laughs> let's not go there yet. Um, but yeah, one of the, the first episodes that we recorded was about the, the attacker mindset. We went over how an attacker goes into an operation like this, but we didn't actually provide too many details. CISA does provide those details here. So you can see exactly what steps they took, how they approached the, the reconnaissance phase, how they got into the systems, how they moved laterally, and we're going to go discuss all of that throughout the, the episode today. I'm actually just going to really encourage anyone interested in security to really read this because 
Um, I haven't had a chance to read all of it yet. I've been looking at it like on and off because I can't just, I, I can't stop looking at it because there's just so much information here. And, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert, that I'm a know-it-all, that I know everything because I don't. I'm a student just like everyone else. So even with the history that I've had, there's still some things to learn in here. So this is definitely great. I can't wait to get into it. Okay, so let's take this from the top. So the, um, the organization is not named in the report, obviously, um, but the, the knowledge and the, the know-how that you can take out of the report is really useful and can be applied in lots of different situations. So first things first, um, the environment had lots of Windows machines. I know the podcast is named Linux and has Linux in the name, but... Um, and I'm sorry if this is going to offend somebody out there, but you'll find very little environments out there in the real world that do not have a single Windows machine in them. Um, most often you'll have lots of Linux servers and you'll have workstations running Windows or something like that. That's very common. The uncommon ones are the ones that have 100% Linux and more power to them, but that's not the case out there for the majority of business and organizations. So, yeah. Right at the start of the report, CISA provides, and they do this before you even get into the meat of the report, just <laughs> something that you should always consider. And you'll see by the end of the report why that should have been followed by the organization and wasn't. So you should first establish a security baseline. Um, what this means and why this is important is that you have to have a way of being alerted if something goes out of the norm, if something is weird in your network or in your infrastructure. Say if suddenly you have an influx of authentication attempts or you have more traffic going between specific servers than usual, you should be able to, to spot that in your monitoring application so that your thresholds are not just the ones that come by default with the, the software. It's the ones that you actually tailor, tailored specifically for your environment. Nobody can tell you uh, you should have an alert popping out at uh, 1,000 requests per second. That's going to be different on every single situation. Um, but you need to establish that security baseline. And you'll see in a, in a bit why that was important and was probably yep. missed. You might even have a real-world example that might just go along with that. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, um, I think we do. Another thing that CISA advises right from the start is that organizations should conduct regular assessments. So what is a regular assessment? It's not just the penetration testing. Not every organization does penetration testing. It's something that's good practice, but you're not forced to do that. But um, regular assessments is making sure that your users, the ones that are using the systems that you're securing or administering or protecting or whatever, are actually following the best practices to secure their posture, their own posture online. So, for example, if you're using, if you're working for, from home, you should have a separate system to access the business systems rather than using the same machine where you have your games and your media applications to access your business uh, applications. And I see Jay just waving his head there. Um, this is a great plug for the LastPass story. The, we've mentioned this in the past. We've About two episodes ago, we talked about LastPass and password managers. Um, so we've been getting more details about the LastPass story, and I promise this is a, a quick tangent here. Um, yep. It has come out that uh, the way that LastPass was actually hacked in October or November was through a, an engineer's system. And the engineer was running a media application that wasn't named at the time, but has since been 
revealed that it was Plex and it wasn't updated. Um, so Plex had a vulnerability and through that vulnerability it was possible to drop a keylogger on the system and because it was the same system that the engineer used to access the last pass secure information, they managed to get the information and through that um, enter the last pass infrastructure. So as part of a regular assessment, you should make sure that your users understand that there should be a separation, an actual air gap separation between your work stuff and your leisure stuff. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I've been trying to start a new segment on the show, but I just keep forgetting or maybe I, you know, one, one day or another, I don't have any examples, but I'm calling it right now. This has been your facepalm of the week. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to use, I think that could be a segment anytime we just so happen to have something. I'm not going to promise it's a segment every episode, but if we have a face palm of the week, we will be mentioning it. We should get that Picard face palm statue, statue that, that's usually sitting on desks. We just point to it. Right. Um, yep. Yeah. The, the third advice that uh, CESA gives, again, this is just from the start, is that you should enforce phishing resistance multi-factor authentication. Uh, and then they have a link for the different types of multi-factor authentication and the one that they consider phishing resistant, the only one that they consider phishing resistance is FIDO-based authentication. So that you have to have something physical that can attest your authenticity and you have to know something, your password or credentials. Um, so yeah, look into that at least to your for your critical systems, but if possible for all of the, the accesses to your infrastructure. Yep. Now that we have those advices out of the way, let's get into the, the actual report information. So this was requested by the organization. They approached CISA to help them validating their security posture. And there are usually two common reasons to do this. You do not have the security expertise in-house to do it properly or to validate what you did. Or number two, you're very smug about your security and you want outside validation that you can then show off. From personal experience, number two tends to be a really harsh reality check, depending on how thorough the red team work is. You'll be surprised at what they find, and they will find stuff, regardless of how good you are. Mm -hmm. So this organization, um, it I'm not sure if it's a company or some other type of organization, but we're looking at something very large. It has six different sites in the US. Um, at some point in the report, they mentioned that in the scope of this work that CISA did, they checked six million, 3 million IP addresses. So that's a slash 16 uh, block. That's a lot of IP addresses. So if you have something like that, that's very expensive to acquire. Um, yeah, um, you're actually a very large institution or organization or whatever. They don't name it, but somewhat something very large. Um, so... Even though they have a mature cyber posture, whatever that means, and the only thing when I read that the cyber, <laughs> the cyber posture, I, the cyberpunk 2077 came to mind, but it was the only thing. Um, the red team operation was not detected, even when the red team actually tried to intentionally trigger the alert systems just to check the response from the organization. So even though they supposedly had good cybersecurity, they still didn't manage to, to catch the, the alert signs on time. Hmm. 
Okay, so starting the, the operation. Phase one is reconnaissance. So you need to understand how the network exists, how the topology exists. You need to understand the systems that are behind it and all of that. And CISA found out that the, the network was segmented across logical and geographical boundaries. So each site had specific networks regularly um, only for that site, and then there were some inter interconnections between the sites. Um, this basically means that there were specific VLANs segregating traffic, and there were some links between the sites. So um, at the end, they'll explain why, but the, the way that they got the initial access was, what else, what a surprise, phishing emails. So they started with open source reconnaissance. They started looking at potential targets. And here by targets, I mean the, the persons that they want to send the, the phishing emails to, not systems. So what did they look for? They looked for the, the IT operators, the people that were actually managing the systems. They went on stuff like LinkedIn and Twitter and tried to find out who they were, where they worked for, and they tried to find out the emails for those persons. So when you have a name and you have an email for somebody, a corporate email, you can quickly try to, to guess what the naming scheme is. As soon as you understand the naming scheme for the emails, you no longer need to know the emails for the other people. You just need to know their names. And to find out the names of somebody working at a particular company, you just go to LinkedIn and search for the company. It doesn't even take too long to, to find the person that you want. So they identified seven targets this way. They created specific emails for each one, and they sent out the, the messages for those targets. Surprise, surprise, two of the, the targets engaged in conversation with them. So they actually replied to the phishing emails. There was some back and wow. forth in the emails. Again, phishing emails, and they weren't able to, to, to spot that they were phishing emails. There was some back and forth. There was some report that was created. And the guys from CISA asked the, the other ones on that target company if they wanted to have... A, an online meeting or a chat for some reason. They invented made, made up some reason and got them to agree to an online call. As part of that, they asked the targets to enter a website controlled by CISA and download the plugin to do the, the call. Obviously, the plugin was malicious and deployed payload to their workstations, and that's how you get initial access. Now you have two workstations inside the network that you have remote access to. And yeah, basically phishing email, the human factor defeats any protections that you might have in place. Yep. Like I mentioned before, this was a primarily a Windows-based infrastructure. They had Active Directory. At the end of the day, if you're just running Linux, you might still have Active Directory. It's, it's not a standard, but it might as well be because it, for identity management, for managing systems and policies and all of that, it's basically the, the de facto standard out there. So they had Active Directory, and from the two um, workstations that they compromised, they could get the information from Active Directory. They could enumerate the users, the, the other workstations and hosts in the network, the access control list. They could see what had permissions to access what other systems. And yeah, they managed to get that information as well. That would let them get the names of the other people that they also wanted to, to track. Uh, so the other people with administrative access to, to other systems. At this point, they created more phishing emails. It's interesting. 
it's not just phishing. They basically didn't do the operation just with phishing. But it's interesting that they didn't try to exploit any vulnerabilities. They didn't try to exploit any open ports. They didn't look for some weird way to get in. Because they couldn't find that, they immediately resorted to phishing and phishing worked. Even against a company with a supposedly good security posture. This is really interesting. And this is a really good telltale sign of something that we've discussed in the, in the podcast previously. Um, you might have the, the best security, you might have the best defenses in place. If the human factor is not properly taken care of, you can still get compromised. We've repeated this ad nauseum, and it still holds true. Yeah, there's just so many things. Like, I feel like some of it is obvious, but um, the local admin permissions kind of struck a chord with me because even though I don't manage Windows systems anymore and I haven't for a while, I, I remember that when administrators have local admin privileges on there. So that was found. But going back to your original point or your point before that, um, it's 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 interesting that you know, phishing is used as much as it is, but it's also not interesting because it works and it's low hanging fruit and it's easy. You, I mean, we've said this before, you don't even have to have technical knowledge to, um, you know, fish somebody and get their password. Although technical knowledge helps and um, phishing only takes you so far. It gets you in, absolutely. But there's so much more when it comes to the things that they found and the vulnerabilities and the things that are going on here. So they definitely, I feel like the security team at this organization, they, they have a lot of checklist items to, to fix. It's a very large infrastructure from the looks of it. And it's also interesting that phishing works the way it does. This is a highly targeted attack. This is a highly targeted operation. This isn't just some random group of hackers out there trying to get in somewhere, wherever they can, without a specific target. This is an operation that targets a specific company, and they are actually wanting to get in, and they will go the extra mile to find information about who works there and how to, to what their interests are and engage with them with something that they're interested in. And this really shows the, the level that, that this type of operations can reach. And these are the ones that are just doing the, the penetration testing. If you have an advanced persistent threat group trying to get into your infrastructure, they will be more motivated than the red team at CISA. So they will go even further than CISA went. Um, so, yeah. And going back to phishing emails, one of the ways that you've been able to spot a phishing email so far or up to last year or something like that, was by the amount of um, grammar mistakes that you could find on those emails. They were usually written by somebody with poor English skills, probably like me. Um, but it would have telltale signs that it wasn't written by somebody fluent in English and somebody that wasn't who they were claiming to be. Even if they were claiming to be from a bank, they would write poorly. Um, one of the things that the chatbots that are out there can now give you is perfectly written phishing emails. The, the chatbots will give you grammarly perfect <laughs> text that you can put in an email and send to your mark, and you won't be able to tell just from the, the mistakes alone. This was a funny aside. One way that you could create uh, spam email filters was just by passing the email through a, a spell checker. If it came back with too many mistakes, you could flag it as, as spam and don't, not letting it through. It won't work today, but 
up until last year or something like that, that was an effective way to spot the, the phishing emails. Another thing that I don't know if um, how many people know this, but I can't remember which company it was. I think a couple of different companies out there offer this. Security companies, um, you know, the bigger named ones, will often have email templates available for free that you could download if you wanted to, you know, obviously check with your management team first to make sure they are aware of this, but they, they have templates you could download if you wanted to just test your own employees and see if anyone clicks on the link. And, um, you know, maybe some of those things are used as well because the templates are out there. So like you were saying, I think it's um, getting easier and easier for that kind of thing to be crafted. Um, so at this point, CISA has access to two workstations in the infrastructure. They identified that this is running Active Directory and they are running scans against the Active Directory. One of these scans comes back that there are 52 hosts inside the Active Directory that have unconstrained delegation enabled. What unconstrained delegation means is that those hosts can create tickets that authenticate other stuff against uh, the Active Directory. So one of the hosts was running SharePoint and had unconstrained delegation. If you got access to SharePoint, you could authenticate anything else basically that you wanted through this uh, unconstrained delegation. This is called a golden ticket attack. Um, Kerberos, which is the, the software responsible for the authentication, the, the tricky bits of authentication on Windows, um, it has lots of different types of tokens that it can provide. You authenticate against the system in Active Directory and you're granted a, a token. If your token is able to authenticate other tokens, then it's a ticket granting ticket. So in a nutshell, if you get one of those, you can authenticate and authorize anything in Active Directory, users, systems, or services. Okay, um, keep this in mind. It's called a golden ticket. This is the, the main attack strategy and the main goal for the, the Caesar Red team at this point, because when they found out that there were systems able to provide this, that's what they're, they were going after. So many of the, the hosts that had this, um, this permission enabled and had these tokens were running Windows Server 2012 release 2 which, by the way, and this is another side, it goes end of life in October of this year. So if your infrastructure has this Windows 2012 running, you should be looking to a migration pass out of it. You won't get any updates after October. Um, okay, and it was running on top of Windows 2012, it was running uh, SharePoint. If you're not familiar, SharePoint is, a, and I'm gonna be nice here, a bloated application server. And again, I'm being mm -hmm. extremely nice here. Um, you are a very nice person. <laughs> <laughs> very kind of you. It's a bloated application server. It can do everything in the kitchen sink. But uh, yeah, it does way more than it should. And it has a fair share of non-vulnerabilities. It has open upload paths that it shouldn't. It has permission issues and all the rest. Um, if you have SharePoint, there are guides on how to harden it. Um, the defaults are not secure by any stretch of the imagination. Um, through the Active Directory scan, the, the red team also managed to identify which accounts belong to the SharePoint admin group. So they sent phishing emails to these um, SharePoint admin group users. Um, you'll notice that this is a very slow and long-running operation. When you're doing red team operations, you do not want to run too fast. Being too fast on an operation like this makes you noisy. If you're noisy, you're going to trigger alerts. If you trigger alerts, you're going to get caught. So this is a long running operation. This basically takes weeks or months to reach this point. 
um, but you will not get caught because you're not doing anything extraordinarily out of the, the norm. So you won't flag the threshold that uh, we mentioned at the start. Um, yeah, you don't want to make too much noise when you're running red team operations. Absolutely, especially when they're phishing someone's password and then they get the password, to use the password immediately right after they get it um, or too soon or something like that could also be an issue too. So there's a lot of strategy involved with this part that uh, could probably be a series of episodes in and of itself. So we'll just shorten it by saying it's a long process, like you were saying, there's a lot going on there. It's interesting that you mentioned not using the password immediately. Because at one point, they found out that there was a sysadmin on a workstation. They managed to get into that workstation, and they noticed that the sysadmin had a secure shell connection open to a Bastion host. And they reused the same socket for a secure shell, and they managed to get the connection without the authentication. Because when you have an SSH socket file available, you don't need to mm -hmm. authenticate to reuse it. That's very interesting tidbit of information that you should Google if you're interested in that. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, keep that written down somewhere. Um, okay, so you don't want to make too much noise. You don't want to be too fast. So they sent out more phishing emails to the SharePoint admins. Again, one of the users obviously clicked the email and got another payload on their workstation. So right now, the red team has three workstations and access to the SharePoint server. This was lateral movement. This is a, a technique employed by the red team and other attackers when you go from one compromised system to, to other compromised systems, and they did this to a SharePoint server. This SharePoint server, you'll recall, has unconstrained delegation enabled, so when they access the server, they could dump the memory and they could get the credentials of all the logged in users using a tool called Mimikatz. If you want, you can Google this. This is open source as well. Basically, Mimikatz takes a dump of memory from a running Windows system. It doesn't take a, a dump of memory. That's another tool, but it operates on a dump of memory and it gives you the credentials that are stored in that dump of memory. Uh, really useful. Um, and it pops out the, the cached credentials that you can reuse, basically the tokens that have been authenticated and you can reuse those tokens. So next they abused um, DFS. DFS is Microsoft Ceph. Um, it's the distributed file system. You basically have multiple copies of the data running on multiple servers. It's redundant. So if one of those nodes drops, you can still access the share. Um, and it they basically authenticated through DFS against the domain controller using the golden ticket. And this allowed them to validate the accounts that they were getting and the services that they wanted to access and all of that. And including the Kerberos service account. Interestingly enough, this is the account that manages the authentication at the domain level. And the password was still the default one, hadn't been changed in 10 years, basically since the, the systems had been deployed. Um, had this password been changed regularly, it would invalidate the tokens that had been um, sent out since. So if you're running uh, some automated... And by the way, you don't need that password. You don't need to log in as that account, but you still want to, to change the password regularly, which is something weird, but you should do that. Long story short, they managed to get lots of credentials for different systems, including a system center configuration management server. If you're not familiar, system center configuration management is a Microsoft software package that lets you 
basically remotely administer client machines, servers, change their configuration, deploy software, create user accounts, create local admins, everything. If you have access to this, you basically own the network. And they managed to do that. So basically, they own the entire infrastructure at this point. That's crazy. So it's almost like, um, for those of you that have no idea about the Windows side, it, let's just say it's equivalent to somebody getting access to your Ansible server, essentially. Yep, essentially. Um, Microsoft actually packs a lot of functionality in this. I know I had to work with this a few years back, and there's a lot of stuff that you can do with this. The, the user interface is a bit cryptic because it lets you do so many things. There are so many controls and so many knobs that you need to, to twist and turn. But uh, yeah, very powerful stuff. So again, with the golden ticket, they impersonated an administrative account on a workstation that they identified was being used by an administrator. And this is what I was referring to before, while the administrator was logged in at the time. So they managed to see what the administrator was doing. And they spotted that it had an SSH session open, and they managed to reuse the, the SSH socket file. Um, this was really good. They managed to get access to one of the Bastion servers that were separating the, the business servers from the infrastructure servers. And yeah, lots more access. Additionally, this, is, this server administrator kept a password manager. Well, not LastPass, that would be too much, but it was KeyPass. Unless the client is LastPass, just throwing it out there. I hope not, but you never know. No, no, no. The... <laughs> I'm sure it's not. I actually, they, they, they have two locations, not six. Yeah. But anyway, continue, just funny. Anyway. It would be funny, indeed. It would um, be very funny. The, the guy was running KeyPass on his workstation, um, but they still managed to, to access KeyPass. Um, they got the passwords for multiple websites and the KVM server. So they had a Linux machine running virtualization. They got access to that Linux server. They got access to the VPN endpoints. So the VPN servers were actually compromised as well by them to the firewalls. And another key pass database, which that the admin had opened at the time. So the key was still in memory. They pulled it from memory and decrypted the password. Basically, they had everything at this point. They did. The only thing they didn't do was um, get into the HR records and hire themselves and give themselves a salary. That'd probably be the only other thing they could have done that that uh, is outside the scope, but they basically owned everything. You're That's joking, crazy. but uh, they didn't get, they didn't do that because the operation had the specific time frame where it had to be performed. And because they were moving so slowly, by the end of the, they ran out of time. They didn't run out of targets. They didn't run out of systems that they moved to. They'd simply run out of time that they had allotted. If it was an attacker, time would be essentially as long as the attacker wanted. So they moved to business-related servers. They moved to business-related databases that were running MySQL, and they compromised the databases. They got access to the actual data. Um, they just didn't get access to more because basically they ran out of time. Um, so all of this uh, so far happened in one of the sites. Um, so they identified that there were six different sites. So now they had to find a way to move to the other sites. 
There were some pretty restrictive network connection rules between them, so there were firewalls in place, but the connections that were allowed, and you'll know this if you've ever touched on Active Directory, is that your domain controllers need to see each other. So even if you're blocking all the, tar all the traffic, the traffic between the, the domain controllers has to go through. And they had compromised domain controllers at one of the sites. So they basically just connected to the other domain controllers from the domain controller they had access to. They basically got access to all of the six sites. On one of those six sites, they identified another workstation that was being used by, by operations. They got into that workstation and they managed to find schematics for the network, schematics for the firewall rules, the DevSecOps rules that they had, documentation about their systems. These guys had all that information and it was all stolen. So, yeah. Um, Additionally, they got uh, the information on how the, the business systems were interconnected, what was connected to what other systems, where the authentication happened, where the databases were stored, the backups, all of that. So these guys, starting from phishing emails, basi basically owned the entire infrastructure of this company. This is mind-boggling. And the detail that CISA gives you on how they perform each of these things, it's amazing. It really it really is. And I, when you were talking about the... Windows Server replication or the Active Directory replication. Um, early in my career, I, I worked on things like that. And I remember, and this is the first time I've thought of this in years, the net logon folder where you have the scripts that are synchronized between them. And sometimes, and it's very often the case on Windows machines, that there's going to be a login script and it'll map your drives or whatever it is that they have access to. So at that point, it's probably just as simple as dropping scripts right into net login if they did that kind of thing net logon i meant to say and then basically that widens their access even more and that becomes even more crazy what they could access at that point it was just a matter of need basically at this point they had all the administrative access that they needed they had the, the golden tickets process in place that they could authenticate anything that they needed to authenticate uh, they could impersonate any account that they wanted so basically they had everything um, <laughs> another thing that they mentioned this is really interesting and shows you the how deep this type of attacks can go and again please keep in mind this was just an exercise to see how secure an, an infrastructure was this wasn't a real attacker trying to do this the red team at CISA, they identified some firewall rules where they were specifying that they should trust a slash 16 IP block so they checked and they saw that there were available IPs on that slash 16 they bought an IP address and they own, deployed the system to that IP address and they validated that that IP address could access the systems because it was trusted at the firewall. It, it goes to show you what an attacker, a sufficiently motivated attacker, will do all of this and probably more. So, yeah, this is an amazingly detailed uh, operation. If you, again, if you're slightly interested in cybersecurity, this is a must read. This isn't a, an article that you read in a minute or two. This is something that you should take a, a pretty large cup of coffee with you and get some time aside to, to read it. But it's really, really interesting. So um, after doing all of this, and when the, the operation was getting reaching to an ending point, um, they wanted to actually trigger the, the security measures in place to see what kind of response the organization had to the incident. So they intentionally did noisy things like port scans. 
which were not detected by the, the organization. Then they did regular Active Directory enumeration, which is also something that goes to the logs. And this was stopped midway, and the host where they ran that from was isolated and sent for analysis, but it did not identify the attackers. Then they, ex they exfiltrated a gigabyte of data, also not detected. They sent malicious traffic to an external host, so they attacked the remote host from within the organization, and that was not detected either. They locked Active Directory accounts, still nothing was detected. They created local admins on systems, nothing was detected. They created accounts on Active Directory, again nothing was detected. They moved as administrator from between different workstations, still nothing. They attacked an external host starting from a domain controller, and that wasn't picked up either. They deployed the virus to a domain controller, and that was picked up by the antivirus, was removed, but nothing was flagged, no logs, no alarms were, were raised, nothing. They simulated a ransomware attack, so they deployed a simulated ransomware package on some of the workstations, and four users reported that to IT. Um, so yeah, there are some, some interesting takeaways from this. You need to monitor the workstation, the servers, and the admin activities properly, and they were severely lacking in this organization. Not picking up all the activities that were done here, even the ones that should have been picked up by even just looking at the logs, that's a big red flag. Not changing... I'd even go as... Oh, sorry. No, 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 no please, please. You. I was also going to say, too, I just had a thought that, you know, as we were saying, I think everyone should read this, whether you're interested in cybersecurity or you already work in it. But I was also thinking that this is a very good document to print. And, you know, if you're if you're having trouble getting buy in for a security practice that you want to implement at your organization, you could hand this to your manager and say, look, this is a detailed account of what outside people could do with these different things that they found. And if anything that you're already trying to fix in your organization is on this list, which is probably a good chance considering they've done everything. Um, <laughs> I mean, at that point, you may as well just send it to your manager. Like that's all the things, uh, everything you need for the justification to get buy-in because I think it's very clear what they were able to do here. And this is valuable, I think, to pretty much everybody in IT, whether you're you know, a techie or not. If nothing else, it's a good starting point to creating a checklist of the stuff that you need to check on your infrastructure um, and make sure that, okay, I'm not susceptible to this, I fixed this, I protected this, I'm not going to fall for that. It's a pretty handy checklist if you do that. Um, additional um, takeaways that uh, CISA pointed out, the Kerberos account not being changed in a decade, that was still the default one, that should never be that. Um, the golden ticket attack was only possible because this was configured this way. Um, the permissions were too lax for the users, the users could do too much, they could deploy their own applications for example, and that's how the first ones that got the phishing emails managed to deploy the 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 beacons on their on their systems and how the initial access was grain, was granted. Um, the hosts had unconstrained delegation. This is something that's Windows specific, um, but probably none of those hosts should have had unconstrained delegation. Again, this is probably a default in Windows 2012, and it's the type of things that you need to check and make sure that you turn off after you deploy the systems. Um, the default configurations that were in use were the same as out of the box, so there were no configurations post-service deployment. And that's something that's really tricky, especially in Windows systems, because they're not very secure by default. 
it has improved over time. I don't want to this on Windows too much. It has improved over time. It's incomparably better right now, but it's still not perfect. Uh, but you shouldn't trust the defaults. You shouldn't trust the defaults on a Linux deployment either, but Windows suffer from this to a greater extent. Um, another thing that was not being done properly is that the outbound traffic was not being monitored correctly. And then there were lots of other things that are in the, in the report, but the, I'll leave it to you to, to actually check all of them. It's, again, incredibly detailed. There were also some positive aspects. Um, first, the organization conducts regular penetration testing. That's for sure, because even the one that CISA was running was a penetration testing. There was 3 million public IPEs in scope for this, and there was no easily exploitable service or open ports in them. And that's amazing. Um, yep. The red team was not able to crack any of the service account passwords, and they tried 610 accounts and they were not able to crack them, so the passwords that had been set were secure, or at least very hard to crack. There were no credentials on shares or file servers, which is something that some organizations leave out there in the open, and these guys didn't. And all of these things managed to slow down the process. It was another thing that contributed to the, the whole operation reaching the end time without all of the systems compromised. But uh, still, it slowed the attack, but it didn't prevent them. Something that uh, Caesar recommends was, uh, again, the multi-factor factor authentication should be more widely deployed. And some of the business systems that were separate from the other business systems could only be accessed by admins from machines that were properly firewalled, and that was something good. Um, but yeah, this is an interestingly detailed um, account. You'll see how this type of operations works, uh, how this works, what the attacker will, is looking for, how they move about the, the infrastructure, how they try to avoid triggering any alerts, and <laughs> even the alerts that they do try to trigger and are not detected, which was something funny to read. Another thing that I'm going to mention about this is that even though this is a Linux podcast, and we already touched on this, but I feel like everything in this report that we've gone over could easily apply to Linux if you replace X for Y, right? So if, if your organization is not running SharePoint, you probably have WordPress. Maybe you have NextCloud. If you're not running Active Directory, you have LDAP. You probably have an NFS server and a separate DNS server and all the things that you know Active Directory encompasses in separate services. So I feel like regardless of what you're running on your network, there's... It sounds like everything is very specific here to this organization, but it really isn't because any one of these things can apply to every organization. So it matters. It doesn't matter so much what what you're running, although obviously Active Directory is going to have its own exploits that are that you know can only be exploited there. But for the most part, they're they're going to go over the same things. Whether it's Active Directory, LDAP, they want the logins. They want to get into the system. So regardless of what you call your login authentication system, whatever package you're using, it's a target, period. Every single time, that's what they're going to go after. So you know, make sure you're looking at it at that lens. Don't look at it like, oh, I don't run that piece of software, so that doesn't apply to me. It probably could still apply to you. So definitely consider everything on it. Phishing is universal. It doesn't care what system you're running. Yep. So, yeah. 
That's so. That's true. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Unless they're trying to look for a start button or walking the person through a start button and they're the one company that runs Linux and everything and they don't have a start button. Uh, but aside from that, you are, you know, that's just a joke. I'm not being serious, but you're 100% correct. Yeah. Yep. Again, really interesting read. Um, if you have the time, go for it. It's interesting to see that CISA has become more active lately. In the past couple of years, three years, something like that, they have become much more active. Um, they are being more proactive about the stuff that they put out, the information that they put out. For example, that um, that actively exploited list that they now have up, that's being regularly updated. Um, really good information coming out of them. And it's really great to see that this type of reports are being published and being published in the open so that everybody can benefit from the conclusions and from the mistakes that were made. And yeah, we can become more secure overall, not just the, the organizations requesting the test. Yep, absolutely. So definitely bookmark this report, read it, go through it slow. Don't you know speed read or anything. Maybe take a section a day and, and really understand everything on it. I, I think it could really be a great re uh, resource for many different types of people in the industry. Yep. So I guess that concludes our episode for today. Um, tune in for the next one. We probably have a guest again. Um, yeah. And until the next one. Thanks, everybody.